Hello and welcome to the Frozen Light Podcast. A podcast aimed at staying in touch with the PMLD community in the age of coronavirus. So I'm Lucy Garland and I'm one of the artistic directors of Frozen Light. And I'm Amber Onak Gregory and I'm the other artistic director of Frozen Light. At Frozen Light, we usually create multi-sensory theatre for audiences with profound and multiple learning disabilities. Now that the theatre scene is currently on pause, we are making a podcast to stay in touch with the community we usually perform for at this time. So we've got a really exciting episode for you today, but before we introduce our guest, we just wanted to let you know that we are still looking for people to join the audience panel and this is an opportunity to be a little bit more involved with Frozen Light. We're looking for people with PMLD, their carers, parents, support workers, people who work in the PMLD community to come and support Frozen Light with the next adventures of the organisation. So on today's show, we've got Rachel Wright who runs Born at the Right Time. It's a blog, it's a website. She's a trainer. She's a former nurse. She is mum to Sam. She runs Camp Jojo. She's a very busy woman and we are very lucky that she had an hour in her schedule to take out and speak to us. We're really excited to speak to her today. We first came across Rachel when we heard her speaking at Raising the Bar conference about Camp Jojo and me and Lucy were so excited about hearing about the camp. We are both huge campers and we would love for Frozen Light to be involved with Camp Jojo in some way in the future. So let's give Rachel a ring. Hi Rachel, thank you for coming on the show today. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, so Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself and Sam? Sure. Well, um, I'm Rachel. I'm an asthmatic with a bit of a bad back at the minute. It kind of starts the bottom part of my back and shoots down my right leg. I've got eczema. I've got hay fever. I broke my wrist last year and then ruptured my APL tendon and I needed to have surgery. Um, And (laughs) Sam, well, Sam's a 14-year-old brown-haired boy with bright blue eyes for some reason, all of my boys have got blue eyes, except I've got brown eyes. How's that even a thing? Um, uh, his favourite things are music and swimming, pointless. He's a big, pointless Alexandra Armstrong and Richard Osman fan. Prefers Lucy, the carer that's living with us, <laughs> to his own mother <laughs> and can regularly be found uh, blowing her kisses across the room. Um, he's missing school, but he's delighted that lockdown has meant that we have been persuaded to buy an inflatable hot tub so that he gets exercise and physio. Um, and so he has a really healthy tan with a very definite trunk tan mark. At the Amazing. Minute. That's what so every that's teenager needs, a, a exactly. trunk tan line. Exactly. <laughs> and he's rocking it, seriously. Oh, amazing. God, I'm pretty jealous of Sam's hot tub. Yeah, yeah. So tell us, what does your lockdown look like and how has life changed for you? Uh, well, obviously, lockdown's just wonderful. And uh, it's fantastic being confined into a small space with three children 
and uh, you know who love to, to move things around the house and expect some mystical creature to magically transport it overnight to where they might find it the next day and <laughs> um, and obviously they don't have any screen time because they are so uh, out exploring nature and they are ex- having sensory experiences and just soaking up this real quality time with me obviously that's all utter nonsense and <laughs> um, so i have thought about starting a youtube channel where i am um, like show people messy places and sort of say look if you close the drawer after you've used it it doesn't look so bad and and when you take clothes off you can like put it into the laundry basket afterwards and in the hope that they might you know the amount of youtube they're watching they might randomly come across them and (laughs) and somehow miraculously discover that you know things can be done without me shouting at them or instructing them that it is required um no really what's lockdown like lockdown is well before lockdown we had like nine carers some of them just did a one or two hours every couple of weeks some of them did a couple of nights a week and um, but i we managed a team of nine carers when lockdown properly came into place when boris johnson did his whole sitting in front of the table thing um then we decided to go it alone try to go it alone and and i'm really proud i survived a whole two weeks whole two weeks a whole two weeks i know i know um the you have got i know you've spoken to other people parents who have done much much longer than me but I honestly, two weeks of doing the nights and the day, you know, there is a reason I didn't become a primary school teacher, a secondary school teacher or an SEN teacher. We say um, that a lot to each other, don't we, Lucy? We do. Yes, yeah. we're like, this is why we're not teachers. Yeah, exactly. It's a really specialist role, but yeah. I'm not. Yeah. So after two weeks, um, we managed to persuade a wonderful carer, Lucy, who, like I say, is flavor of the month actually with all the kids to be fair um and she, she you know given the fact that we get sleep um and um a slightly more fun for our kids as well she's pretty high on our list as parents as well Tim and I we did two weeks without Lucy and then we've had Lucy in but nobody else so she's isolating has been isolating with us for me that meant I do a bit of running I've run a couple of marathons I haven't run a marathon for um a couple of years but Going into lockdown, I quickly realised within a couple of weeks that it was like I was going on my marathon run without taking any of my energy gels. And <laughs> although I could get round it, um, I'm going to be an absolute mess at the end of it. So I just kind of, re- you know, we kind of came to the point, and I think this is what parents like me have to do all the time, is, yeah, we can get by I can manage to not kill my children I can manage to not throw any of them out the window I can manage to you know not harm myself but is that the best I can I can offer them is that the best I can do and actually um I think it's hard isn't it to to ask for help um but I absolutely recognize that when I get more sleep I'm a nicer person I think lockdown was uh, diff- has been difficult because my world has shrunk again. You know, like we said, the whole teaching thing um, and the work that I was doing before and stuff. Um, and, you know, I like talking to people um, and that 
that has shrunk, that's that world shrunk. And so that's been that's been difficult to kind of process a little bit and then process because it's a new thing, but also process because maybe it's opened up some past trauma as well. Those first few months on years of Sam's life where all of our dreams and hopes and expectations that we'd had um, were completely sort of taken away or changed. Um, I think lockdown has kind of brought all of those emotions back up to the surface. I kind of web- I wonder whether we've got like um, m- emotional memory. You know the way like my son tries to play the violin. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but you know, talk about me and I'm, I'm in lockdown with someone learning the violin. <laughs> it's just. Anyway, but yeah, he has, you know, his, his violin teacher talks about muscle memory, like do that thing over and over again and you'll learn it. And I wonder whether there's been so many times when I've been um, standing at the, the hospital and getting more bad news and having a plan for going on holiday and my child gets sick and it stops and, you know, all these things that you expect. And so I think there's been something about this episode of, of lockdown that has brought a lot of those really difficult emotions that I've dealt with as much as I can back to the surface and, and made me kind of revisit them and work them all out all over again. And you're not the first person we've interviewed that said that actually, interestingly, our last week's guest was saying exactly, exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. We must be right then. Yeah. Always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a challenge now, isn't it? Because um, I think lockdown's been the easiest bit, to be fair, because we've had really clear, right, this is what we need to, to make it okay. This is, this is how you keep your family safe. But we're now in a situation where we have inevitably got months, potentially even years, of a new type of normal with social distancing and shielding and isolation and all these jargon worlds that none of us even knew six months ago. Um, another similarity with becoming a parent of a child with complex needs. Um, and we're going to have to work out how to look after our families all over again, because funnily enough, none of the guidance really kind of relates to us. None of the guidance really you know, speaks into our individual system um, situations. And so we have to, um, we have to risk assess all the time, which is, you know, we, we've done for years. We've, we've got to work, we've, we've spent our lives risk assessing, um, you know, whether to leave our child with another person or whether to go on holiday and decide how far away that is from the hospital or whatever. Um, and so I think we're used to making those risk assessments every day. Um, but we're going to have to do that um, very deliberately and very carefully over the next over the next months and years. And today is Tuesday, the 23rd of June. And it was just yesterday when new guidelines came out for people who are shielding and who've been told that they need to shield that that can end on the 1st of August as long as there are safe measures put in place, but that was basically the only information that was given. So what are those safe measures? How will that happen? How safe is it? What is the science? You know, so that new date's been given with very little further information. 
Yeah, and the other thing that's come out is the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health has revised their guidance as well. So when I talk about things being specific, actually those that guidance is much more helpful to parents like me than sort of um, the government generic guidance um, because it, it doesn't generally talk about children, it talks about adults. The difference in that guidance that has been revised and updated is that actually... Um, they've taken some of the children, so they've got two groups. They've got group A and group B. And group A is um, talks about children who definitely need to be in shielded, you know, and they tend to be children that are being treated with cancer. They tend to be children who are immunosuppressed, post-transplant, you know, children, those very clear cases. And then there's group B, um, and, and previously in Group A, Sam would have come under Group A. He would have come under a child who might have difficulty swallowing and maybe have some breathing difficulty, you know, sort of chest stuff. But he has actually been moved to Group B, which are um, these people may need to shield or not. Actually, it's, it's more likely they don't, and they need to consult their clinician specifically to discuss what that means. We didn't actually ever get a shielding letter. And I suspect that was really because um, everybody thought somebody else was doing it more than anything, rather than that it was the right thing. Um, but that was fine because we were always going to go and do whatever we thought clinically was the right thing to do. My husband's a GP, I'm a nurse. So we were always going to kind of risk assess and try and work things out ourselves. Um, but it is really hard, like you say. So, for example, we're, we've made the decision next week to start having a couple of night carers in so only two of our night carers we're still going to limit the personal care they're not going to um uh, i'm going to put lots of different things in place for example we'll come into the porch and i'm going to give them some blues that i've washed as in some theater blues that i'll have washed and they will get changed into those and they will wear a mask and they will stay two meters from everybody else in the family and they will um when they're dealing with uh, Sam, they will obviously wash their hands as soon as they arrive and stuff, and they will put alcohol gel as soon as they go to him, and they'll be wearing a mask when they deal with him. I mean, that's that's not perfect, but um, I'm basically going to treat those carers as though they do have it, as though they do have COVID, and basically try and limit the potential for them to um, provide any infection. Again, for that reason that I said before, that this is going on for a long time, and this might be the lowest infection rate we have for ages because we're going to be releasing we're releasing the population into the wild again and goodness knows what the pubs are going to be like when everybody realizes they can go again um and it's going to get it's going to get hard you know it's going to get the infection rate is going to change and it's not going to get a lot lower so we have to deal and you've just mentioned that you you're a trained nurse are you currently working as a nurse no so i stopped nursing outside the house so to speak, uh, where my youngest was born five years ago. Um, I still registered as a nurse, so I'm because of the training that I do and the work that I've done um, around the communication co-production stuff, um, I still managed to persuade the NNC that I'm working. Um, although, you know, I know plenty of nurses that do a heck of a lot less nursing than I do. <laughs> and I have a lot less nursing than a lot of other parents do quite frankly <clears throat> I reckon there's probably been a lot more nursing going on in the lives of complex children's homes than you know because quite a few of the nurses I mean our, our palliative care 
nurses have been stopped from going into our house. So, you know, I don't know how much nursing you can do virtually on the, on the, the, over Zoom. I mean, it's possible and you can, but let's be honest, it's the parents um, and the carers that are stepping in and, and doing the care and the hands-on changing pegs and, you know, buttons and mickeys and putting NG tubes in that gets yanked out and doing the suctioning and all that stuff's being done by a parent. And I think that's a really, you know, important point to make, like how important parents and carers are and even more so during this time and how often undervalued you all are. It's something I talk about in the training, actually. You know, if you, if, and no matter who you are, whether you're a physio, an OT, a therapist of any kind or a specialist, if you go into a situation and you do your thing, and you do it at the person and at the family and at the parents and stuff, and then you walk away, it will only ever last for that moment in time that you are present. If you build a relationship with the parents and the family and the child, and you build an understanding of what it is you're doing, and most importantly, why you're doing it, and you inspire and you motivate and you resource the family, we will walk over hot coals for our kids. You know, we will do whatever it takes for our children. And if you tell me, if you inspire me and tell me why something needs to be done, I'll be doing it at 11 o'clock at night or 4 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon because I'm there and I can. So rather than, um, you know, simply especially, you know, the specialist doing their thing and then wandering off, there's so much opportunity. Um, and that's more tr- and lockdowns ex- expose that dramatically you and you've just mentioned you've just mentioned your training there so during lockdown you started a course titled reimagining communication and co-production with families in a post-covid world along with the hashtag bridging the gap so how did this come about and what are your aims with the training so i've been doing training i sort of um is you know stumbled into doing this a few years ago so i published my book the Skies of Munda, which is a memoir about becoming a parent of a child with complex needs. Um, I stumbled into that. I, I had no intention of writing a book. I got a GCSE. I've got C in my GCSE English. I completely made up the reading list based on films that I'd watched um, <laughs> because I didn't read anything except the back of a cornflakes packet. Um, and I know if that I thought I might have a toy in it. Um, and I... But I got to the point of a few years, quite a few years after Sam was born, he was probably seven or eight, and I, my head was just full of the stories of our life and the decisions we made and the conversations we'd had. And I kind of just needed to get it out because it was keeping me awake. Not at night. I, I, my head hits the pillow. I'm out. But wake up at five in the morning and I can't get back to sleep. So I um, just needed to get those voices out of my head. So I started writing did a couple of writing courses um, and did some blogging. And then the book was published. I published, self-published the book. Um, and from that, people started, again, having bridged both sides of the fence, you know, both sides of the bed, so to speak. You know, I've been the parent um, and I've been the nurse. And I've been that healthcare professional who's broken the bad news. Um, and I've been the... Um, the mother. So the bridging the gap thing is about, I recognized when I became a mum that there's a big disparity between 
the information professionals get and the information parents get and there's a there's a there's a there's a conflict very often there's a tension um that uh, comes about from different perspectives and different priorities and i think the that my dream is that we bridge some of that gap that actually um and i and i think this this post covid world is a fantastic opportunity for us to all reflect and reimagine and work towards um, better understanding each other's roles and how together we can be doing something um, more um, for each other to make life better for the children that we, we all care for at the end of the day. And because we spend so much time fighting and, um, you know, me included for complaints or whatever and i just think we could be using our energy so much better well it sounds awesome and it sounds like a much needed course and you get out and work with doctors and nurses yeah so the courses used to be like you know with real people like and i used to like <laughs> touch people oh, and i used that. to like um so i did i did communication and co-production has been my um passion i guess um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm, I don't like to talk. <laughs> um, and uh, but I, so I, I something about I, I just really feel like we could be seeing each other better from a professional and parent point of view. Um, and I do think that's two ways. I don't think that's just about professionals changing how they work. I think that's also about parents recognizing that pretty much everybody who goes into the work that we come in contact with are doing it because they care are doing it because they wanted to make a difference positively for people's lives. Um, they don't wake up in the morning and think, how can I tick off that woman whose child's severely disabled today? Um, that might be what happens, but it is really the intention. So I used to do that physically, and it was like OTs and physios and medical students and nursing and postgraduate nurses. And um, I've spoken at international conferences, I've spoken at parliament and spoken in sort of just local events and stuff um and yeah those first three months of lockdown i kind of had a bit of a part of my meltdown and my shrinking of world is like oh my goodness the business that i've tried to build up over the last three years just you know evaporated because i can't go and do this stuff partly because i've got all the blinking children at home um but also because i can't we can't do this traveling and whatever and and i have to consider the needs of the kids and keeping everybody safe um but out of my own you know in the same way i'm suggesting professionals reimagine actually the process of taking the courses online means like the course on thursday that we've got um there's people from all over the country coming there's people from all over the world coming actually there's australia new zealand canada um, and all around the uk um are coming on a course that i mean and i couldn't physically if i had to go to those there's no way i could see all those people so actually that's one way that the virtual world is enabling me and i don't have to i don't even have to get dressed you know as long as the top half of me i can be wearing my pajamas underneath the desk <laughs> and still i can pretend to be professional and train but um, Rachel, we first came across you when we heard you speaking at Raising the Bar last year about what sounds like the incredible Camp Jojo initiative that me and Amber are like desperate to come. Um, then can you tell us a bit more about this and 
obviously I've seen it's been cancelled this year and how the plans have had to change. Oh, it'd be so fab if you came. That'd be awesome. Um, we, yeah, so Camp Jojo, is to- Camp Jojo is totally a dream come true for my husband and I. We, um, well, let's be honest, he loves the outdoors. I kind of grew to love it after being together for 25 years. Um, <laughs> and he, I, don't know, I don't know if you do camping at all. Um, yeah, we're both camping, you know, camping. Yeah, so, but that's the whole kind of, you think your car's quite big until you go camping and you're like, oh my goodness, all this stuff. Um, I remember when Sam was little and we'd go to my um, parents-in-law's house and we'd just be going for the afternoon and they'd be like, are you moving in? Because we'd have, you know, the baby bag with all the changing things and the milk and the meds and the, and there's a different high chair that Sam could sit in and the specialist push chair. And that was just for an afternoon. So like, taking kids camping full stop is like you know you kind of need to get a forklift truck and taking your child with a disability camping the amount of kit you have to bring is ridiculous you spend more time packing and setting up than you do actually there we used to go for two weeks camping but partly because you just felt you spent three days setting it up you know a day packing at home a day traveling a day setting it up what was the point of only going for like a week? Because then you'd be taking it down again. So Camp Jojo is all about having all of the equipment and the support with practically with people to make camping actually fun for the whole family, not just the children. Um, and the parents are exhausted um, right at the very at the very end. So camping was always really important to us as a family and we wanted to produce something that was actually a holiday and enjoyable for families. Um, and it is sadly one of those things, like, you know, I'm just saying how, how p- the potential for this virtual world to potentially um, enable people, you really can't camp on a Zoom call in the same way. So, yeah, we took the decision um, fairly early on that we could, there was no way we were going to be able to offer exactly what um we would have planned which is seven or eight families in a private farm with all the facilities and equipment and volunteers they would need in order to um have a really unique fun um uh, new experience but um we're hoping to to offer a little bit of virtual stuff this summer where people can connect to our um camp jojo facebook and website where there will be videos and um, some interactive things like storytelling around the campfire and different bits that our volunteers and stuff are going to provide. Um, Just to make sure that everybody knows that we will be back. Um, And no doubt, I think even next year, I think it will look a bit different and we will have to, we'll have to um, adjust the way we do things. Um, but we're absolutely determined to um, keep that dream and that passion and that um, experience alive for I think, our families. I think we felt very similar about multi-sensory theatre, haven't we, Lucy? It's just like, oh, we've done a lot on Zoom. We've even managed to kind of start a project with an organisation in New Zealand. You know, that's all things that we wouldn't have considered to do virtually at this time. So there are things we've been able to do, but the main premise of our organization we just can't do and that's been really difficult yeah 
yeah so i think when when it's when you're reflecting on things that um have changed like for example with, with families you've got this inner circle of people who used to touch our lives physically every day you know there's daily carers and those those teachers and those people that did transport who who absolutely touched our lives not just in a metaphorical sense but in a very physical practical sense and lockdown has utterly stopped that from happening and there isn't a you know as there isn't a way of replacing that that sort of outer circle of people who step into our life and who give us information and, and provide therapies or do these these um other things actually this lockdown has been epic because like we had a great Ormond Street appointment um, a couple of weeks ago for Sam, and normally that's a whole day off work. Like that's potentially three hours driving in, um, you know, however long appointment, um, probably need to go to the toilet and have something to eat before we do another three hours drive back. So that's like six, seven, eight hours of a day. I was wearing my running stuff. Zoom call. You know, the doctor came through, done and dusted in 15 minutes. Like that is a proper benefit. But for those people who really touch your life, you know, like you say, your theatre where you get to engage and you get to provide that physical, sensory experience, um, yeah, you can't you can't replace that. And so we've spoken about some positive changes that have happened within lockdown. Are there any changes you hope will support people with profound and multiple learning disabilities in the future, influenced by this time in lockdown? So one of the things that I really hope um, has a change is, is a level of empathy. You know, I think before, well, now, since lockdown, pretty much everyone in the whole world knows what it's like to be going through life with a certain set of priorities, a certain number of things in the diary, a certain set of expectations and a, an ease and a normality about life and the way things go, and then it will change. And suddenly everything be very different. And we haven't to, and the, the discourse and the confusion and the uncertainty of life being very different. Um, and so I hope whenever I talk and do training and stuff and try and share with some of the people and professionals and stuff what life is like and about that transition, they can tap into the emotions and the realities that they've experienced through this lockdown process. Um, I really, really hope, um, like I say, through the training and stuff, that um, we have the opportunity to stop and to really reevaluate our values and our mission and our expectations as professionals for families um, and consider ways in which we can provide a more equitable system, a more reciprocal system where it's not just me as a professional saying what has to be done and when it has to be done. Um, you know, before if uh, the you know, the, the physiotherapist wanted to book a meeting with me to discuss something, then I'd get a letter in the post saying, so this is the date that I can do, and can you do it then, and come to the this place? And I'd either say, like, either be like, yeah, fine, um, put that on my, you know, pile of, um, my inbox pile of sort of letters, or, and zip it into the diary, or I'd like to spend the next 24 hours trying to get hold of that person to try and re-enrage that appointment because it didn't suit me and whatever else. And now we've got the chance, what's happening is professionals are having to meet families where they're at 
because the families can't extract themselves and take them to where the professionals are. And I hope that is something, that ideology, even if that physically isn't going to continue, although I think it could do for a lot of situations where parents and families have been expected to go somewhere and really there wasn't any need. They could have had that telephone conversation. They could have had that Zoom conference. There wasn't, you know, I didn't need to have my child screaming in a waiting room for 30 minutes before I had a five-minute dietitian appointment. I could have just spoken to the dietitian on the phone. I didn't need to spend an hour trying to get disabled parking space. Um, so I really hope that some of the changes in the way in which professionals have um, step into our lives rather than us having to go and accommodate the professional's priorities and the therapy priorities um, carries on so that there is um, an opportunity to, like I say, reimagine translating what we do practically into a much more family-focused and child-parent-focused practice. And I think this is, you know, everybody's had to stop. We've all had to stop and take a deep breath and it's all been chaotic and there is a, there is a potential and a tendency for us to take what we've done in the past and try and contort and squeeze and make it fit into this new normal i really really hope that people will be a bit more risky than that and we'll be prepared to say okay let's let's wipe the slate clean and say okay what is it that we're trying to do in our service and our therapy and our provision and how can we do that in a way that meets the needs of the families rather than fits our provision. I think we've got this opportunity and I really, really hope that lockdown has the, um, is the catalyst to, to, for that to be reimagined and changed for people with PMLD in the future. That sounds wonderful. Absolutely. Would it be? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, and again, something that's been echoed by other people that we've, we've spoken to, you know, actually there are these positive things. Which and you think... If there are a number of people saying it, then change is possible because if people are recognizing the same benefits and the same challenges that are coming out of this period, then hopefully that will mean that voices will be heard. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's, that's why I care about the whole bridging the gap. You know, bridging the gap is, is the thing that I really want to strive for because there is this, there is this, family voice and there is this um, collaborative voice from parents um, and I think actually we too often are arguing against the the people in place to try and support us and actually what I think when you talk about collaborative voices and louder voices if we the parents and the professionals and the specialists were all united in our voice of turning around and saying to the people who have the structures and the, the, the policies and the legislation or whatever, this isn't working, or this is how we need to change things. If, if we bridge that gap, how much stronger would our voice be if all the professional bodies and all the parents and all the things were turning around to the government and the people in power, whether it's local, whether it's central, and saying, hang on a second, the system isn't working. So we've got this We've got, this, um, we've got this ideology and policy of collaboration and co-production, all this stuff up, up in the clouds kind of thing. But by the time it filters down to the reality for families, it's so different. It doesn't feel like collaboration. It doesn't feel like effective communication. Um, 
And but the, the things that need to be changed are not things that the professionals who we work with can make anything, can do anything about. We collectively need to use our voice to turn around and say, come on, this, this can be different and this can be better. Um, and like you say, if there's a united voice from families and a united voice from the people who are in our lives trying to support us, and then we go, just imagine what we could do. And the power of, pe- of the people. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we should leave it there. Thank you, Rachel, on that, on that nice sort of note. And just before we finish, we've got a lovely recording that you did earlier in the week uh, where you're having a chat with Sam. So we'll just play that here. How are you, Sammy? Say hiya. Do you want to listen to the Gruffalo? Mm. Yeah. Would you like to go swimming later? Mm. Yeah. Who do you love more? Do you love... Listen, do you love Mummy? Do you love Lucy? Mm. Oh, nice. Nice to hear that. Do you want to put your your story back on? Mm. Yeah? Love you lots. And thank you, Sam so much for that clip um it's really hilarious to hear that you're loving lucy more than your mum right now uh rachel how does that make you feel i just got to say that that's outrageous that actually i'm much nicer than lucy and um that uh just because you know i am just as beautiful as the 20 year old girl that he prefers at this minute um and uh that's about it really i just you know i just don't want to end on and saying all that, and then Sam being like, yeah, but you're not as good as Lucy, are you, mum? <laughs> which, which is essentially what you've done in this podcast. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you both. Thank you, thank Rachel. You. Thank all right, cheers. Bye. Bye. So what an interesting episode. And I think what was so fascinating about talking to Rachel following Emma and Hugh's episode last week was the real correlation between what they were saying in their hopes for the future and the hope that actually medical professionals and people in their lives will start to think a little bit more about how they can support them by using these virtual technologies and all the good things that have come out of that. So I found that really, really interesting and exciting. I found really interesting Rachel talking about the hashtag bridging the gap and the training that she's providing. And we will put a link for all the things that we discussed on the podcast on our website notes. I'll also put a link up for the COVID-19 shielding guidance for children and young people from the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, which uh, Rachel also mentioned in today's episode. So up on next week's episode, we have Dr. Nicola Grove from Open Storytellers. And what we're really excited to talk to Nicola because during lockdown, herself and a few others have been running Surviving Through Story, which has been running on Facebook and has become a bit of a phenomenon. So we're really excited to learn more about it. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the podcast or about any of our future projects, please email us at info at frozenlighttheatre.com. Our website is www.frozenlighttheatre.com forward slash podcast if you want to look at the specific podcast page which has links to all our episodes and the show notes as well as a transcript of the episode if you'd like to find us on facebook you could get us at facebook.com forward slash frozen light theater we are at frozen theater on twitter 
and at Frozen Light Theatre on Instagram. And you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere else you would usually find your podcasts. And please rate, review and subscribe. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Bye.